0: Love the movie Casablanca, and there's a great line in the movie Casablanca. It's not the most famous line from the movie, but it's uttered by Humphrey Bogart as he's thinking about how he's going to deal with this moment in his life where the love of his life has returned to him. He spent the last however many years trying to rid his mind of Ilsa, the love of his life, played by Ingrid Bergman, and He set up a a bar in Casablanca and figured he had that life or that chapter kind of closed. And then because they're swept up into events far bigger than themselves, it's World War II happening, it's North Africa, and through various events, she comes back into his life. And he has to decide what now. And he utters these great words, as only Humphrey Bogart could, of all the gin joints and all the towns and all the world, She walks into mine. And this is the existential crisis for Rick Blaine. What now? What do I do? How do I manage my feelings and my emotions? And what do I do with the information that I've been given that's a lot bigger than me that has to do with World War II? It's the pivot point in the movie because he decides to engage in a life that is beyond anything that he thought uh, perhaps he'd be called into. And I think that same type of existential angst that he wrestles through in that movie is very much preeminent in this discussion today as we look at the life of the Old Testament character, Barak. And I set that up in, in this way. We live in a moment of time, about 7 billion people on the planet today. And looking around this room, and because we're in Charlotte, North Carolina, 2012, the Statistical reality, and though we may not feel like it, the statistical reality is we look around, we are the wealthiest people that civilization has ever seen. We have access to clean water, lots of it, water with fluoride in it to keep our teeth from decaying. We have access to food and nutrition, grocery stores everywhere. Grocery stores going up all the time. We have access to easy uh, options for healthcare, drug stores, doctors offices seemingly on every corner. We've we're within 2 minutes of some two of the biggest hospitals in the region. We've got endless educational opportunities, universities and online courses and we're within if you want to pursue our religious studies, we were we're within 15 minutes or so of three seminaries in the in the country. We are among the most wealthy and privileged people that civilization has ever seen. And I think the existential moment for us is what do we do with that? Of all the times in the history of civilization, God has us alive now. Out of all the cities, in all the countries, in all the world, God has us here in Charlotte. And why is that? And whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus or if you're someone who's just kind of exploring what might Christianity be all about, I think we're going to have an opportunity to explore the life of someone who demonstrated simple courage and will be challenged by how his life of simple courage might, in fact, influence us. A number of months ago, I read this quote. Uh, The author who's shaped my thinking the most over the last year has been Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard is a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California, a prodigious author as far as the weight of of his words. And a number of months I read these words. It's from the introduction to his classic book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. He wrote these words back in 1988, but I think they're just as haunting and live for us today. He writes these words in his introduction. He says, Multitudes are now turning to Christ in all parts of the world. How unbearably tragic it would be, though, if the millions of Asia, South America, and Africa were led to believe that the best we can hope for from the way of Christ is the level of Christianity visible in Europe and America today, a level that has left us tottering on the edge of world destruction. And again, he wrote those words back in 1988. How much more so today? The world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They have done the best they could, no doubt. But this is an age for spiritual heroes, a time for men and women to be heroic in faith and in spiritual character and power. The greatest danger to the Christian church today, of which Warehouse 242 is a part, is that of pitching its message too low. My goal today is to not pitch the message of Christianity too low. And if you're exploring the message of Christianity, I want you to hear that it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's an adventure, but it's not easy. And if you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, what I want you to hear is that God is asking you, is calling you to engage in something far bigger than than your life and far bigger, perhaps, than you've ever imagined. There's a great title to a book, a compilation of sermons written by the late uh, Christian philosopher uh, Francis Schaeffer, and the title of the book is this, No Little People... And there are those of us in this room who would probably feel like, well, if you're asking me to be a game changer or a world changer, not sure you're asking the right person. I mean, let's leave that to the Gates foundations of the world and to the, and to the Clinton foundations of the world and to those people who are, are most equipped to handle the, the most pressing issues of our world today. But the, but the theme of the Bible is that there are no little people. And oftentimes, perhaps surprising to us, It's, in fact, God's choice to use the most subtle, unsuspecting characters, under-the-radar stealth characters, to accomplish his good purposes. By way of introduction, and you've perhaps heard this before, but I want to echo it, I do not believe that the God of the Bible is interested in making our lives safe. I do not believe that the God of the Bible is interested in making our lives comfortable and convenient. But I do believe that the God of the Bible is exceedingly interested in making us brave. And as we become brave in following Jesus, we can indeed, anyone in this room, can be the type of spiritual hero that Dallas Willard challenges us with in that introduction. So with that By way of introduction to where we're going today, we're going to take a look at this unassuming, again, under-the-radar character of the Old Testament named Barak. And again, likely most of you have never heard of him, most of you have never read his, his narrative, but we're going to dive into it today. And we're going to do so by, the, by looking at the book of Judges. And if you want to kind of get out your handheld device or your smartphone and you want to go to version and pull up Judges chapter 4, we're going to read excerpts from his life. And I just want to make a little uh, prep, uh, preface note here. Uh, there we intentionally eliminated some names from the PowerPoint screen, but if you opened up your Bible and you read, read through this, you'd notice there are a lot of big names, some clumsy-sounding names that kind of make the text flow a little awkwardly. And sometimes uh, it's easy to say, gosh, this, this is why reading the Bible is just so hard. It's like, what do I do with all these names? And what do I do with all this detail? Well, what I want you to just kind of understand it by way of preface is that's all in there. If you read this later or read this live, that's all in the Bible for a very specific reason. The author of this narrative, who historians believe to be the prophet Samuel, includes all these interesting details because he wants you and I to understand that these are real people who existed in time and space history, These are real places on a real map someplace, and these are events that actually happened. Not just as interesting bedtime stories to to share uh, or to tell to children, but as stories that are meant to change our lives. So with that as an introduction, we're going to go to the book of Judges, one of the books of history of the Old Testament, a historical narrative, and we're going to look at Judges chapter 4, and it'll be up on the PowerPoint. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud was dead, Ehud was a judge. He was the judge previous to the judge we're going to meet today. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Yabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. Now Sisera was the commander of his army. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Now Deborah and I'm Americanizing that name. A prophet, the wife of Lepidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun, "'And lead them into the mount up to Mount Tabor. "'I will draw out Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, "'and with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, "'and I will give him into your hands.' "'Barak said to her, "'If you go with me, I will go, "'but if you don't go with me, I won't go. "'Certainly I will go with you,' said Deborah. "'But because of the course you are taking,' The honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There, Barak summoned 10,000 men who went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Sisera summoned to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go. This is the day that the Lord has given the Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord God gone ahead of you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot where dot 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 he would later be killed at the hands of another woman. Now, as an epilogue to this narrative, In Judges chapter 5, Barak and Deborah write a victory song about what had happened, and this is one of the lyrics to that victory song. In Judges chapter 5, 21, From the heavens the stars fought, From their courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away, The age-old river, the river Kishon, March on, my soul, be strong. Now, I want to set a little context for where we're going today. There's a, If you heard about these iron chariots in this narrative, that's uh, something to pay attention to. This narrative takes place roughly 1150 B.C. Civilization had just come out of the Bronze Age into the First Iron Age. And so those civilizations, or those empires rather, that had access to bronze had a distinct military advantage. They could build these iron chariots, were, which were for all intents and purpose, purposes impermeable to mere swords and, and, and mere, mere arrows. They had a distinct military advantage. And I want you to get an, get an idea that for 20 years, this bloodthirsty, historically cruel army had terrorized the nation of Israel with these iron chariots. They were invincible. These were the thug of all, thugs of all thugs. They were the bullies in catastrophically ugly ways. And For those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, I want to take you back to the second Lord of the Rings movie if you've seen it, The Two Towers. There's a moment in The Two Towers where Theoden King leads his people to kind of their last stand, to Helm's Deep, because there's an army brewing that Saruman has created, this hybrid uh, army, bloodthirsty orc army, and the king believes that the only way they can stave off this army is to go to Helm's Deep. And some of you may remember the scene where the king and orders that all fighting men, even young boys and even old men, anyone who could hold a sword, go to the weapons cache and they start handing out weapons to the most unlikely of soldiers. And you remember kind of Gimli and um, Legolas looking and saying, man, we are we are in for a battle here. Some of these some of these guys have—they're—they're uh, they're so green and they're so so old. What kind of army are we assembling here? That's not altogether dissimilar from what's happening in this narrative in Judges chapter four. As a matter of fact, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy, w- wrote from a Christian worldview, and there are enough similarities to the Battle of Helm's Deep to this particular text, which you'll see in a little bit, that I wonder if if the the narrative of Barak and Deborah, in fact, influenced his. His, his chapter on Helm's Deep. Because uh, if we go to just the preceding chapter in Judges chapter 3, the text says this, uh, These are the nations the Lord left to test those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not previous battle experience. And then later, all the Canaanites were left to test. This is God's purpose in keeping the Canaanites in the land. to to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their ancestors through Moses. A terrorizing army. And God's purposes are revealed here to say to this army, to this under-resourced, ill-equipped army, are you willing to trust in me that in fact I can go before you and I can deliver this vastly superior, bloodthirsty, technologically advanced army into your hands? The leader at the time was Deborah. And Deborah knew something that perhaps a lot of the Israelites did not. Deborah knew something from way back, uh, the promise made through Moses hundreds of years before in Moses' last collection of farewell sermons to the people. He wrote these words, this is recorded in the book of, of Deuteronomy, basically a collection of his last sermons, Deuteronomy chapter 20, when Moses says this, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them. Because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. And perhaps the most profound way that God demonstrated that he would be with them was through this beautiful, strong character, this judge named Deborah. Now, Deborah was not uh, the traditional uh, uh, judge within the lineage of judges of the Old Testament. Last week we heard about Gideon. a judge who came from an unlikely background. Judges were most often, in the book of Judges, judges were most often um, rescuers, military leaders, but not Deborah, necessarily. Deborah had two kind of unique things going for her. One, she was, in fact, an actual judge. There's that passage where, um, judge. here you have it, Deborah holding court at the palm of Deborah. People who could not resolve their disputes locally knew that during this part of time in Israel's history, that Deborah was the unquestioned leader of the people and they could go to her and they could have their disputes resolved. She was the arbiter of truth and she was the defined leader of the time. And unlike the other judges of this, of this period, Deborah fits the mold of what we would consider a traditional judge, someone who actually kind of holds a court of law and renders decisions. She was very unique in that regard. And then the other uniqueness, of course, is that Deborah was a woman. This is 1150 B.C. This was an era of time, an era of civilization that was dominated by men. This was an incredibly thunderous patriarchal society, or patriarchal civilization. Women were relegated to the tent. Women were relegated uh, to, the, to, the, to the temple to be prostitutes, to take care of the men. But here, in this period of time in Israel, God raises up a woman, the unquestioned leader of the people. And so we have the stage now set. Deborah calls out Barak to be the leader of an army, an ill-equipped, under-resourced army to go against this terrorizing group of Canaanites. And scholars sometimes debate, what do we do with uh, the response from Barak? Was he kind of a chicken? Was he kind of fearful? Was he, I mean, what do you do with, uh, I won't go unless you go with me? And some scholars, scholars and commentary have diff, uh, commentators have different perspectives on that. Some think that maybe uh, uh, he was indeed afraid. He was timid, and he needed to be called into something greater than himself. Some other commentators, though, say this is a real act of humility and a real faithfulness and a distinct uh, mark of his own uh, courage as a leader that he would be unashamed to ask for this woman to go with him. So whatever the reality is, barack does go with deborah and deborah's response is uh is interesting of course i'll go with you and in ways that we that only deborah knows she's able to draw out the canaanite army into this valley of jezreel and here we have the stage set and uh, because i have access to a laser pointer again i'm going to choose to use it and uh, bear with me for a sec so i'll try to be an equal opportunity laser pointer for both sides of the screen Here's where we're looking. If you go to Google Maps and if you type in Sea of Galilee, it'll take you to, right to this body of water in present-day Israel. The capital of the Canaanites was located here, about eight and a half miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And Sisera would take his troops down here to this valley here. This is called the Jezreel Valley. And the river, the Kishon River, would kind of wind through here. And this is the, the stage is set. Mount uh, Tabor is right over here. And now the stage is set for this vast battle. And Drew, you can take it from there. Here's the scene. (coughs) Chariots excel on open plains, flat lands. So it would be natural for Sisera to draw his chariot army to this vast Jezreel valley where they would have a distinct advantage. Iron chariots, they could overrun any foot army. Right next to the Kishon River. Kishon River, which kind of winds its way from the Mediterranean Sea. And up on Mount Tabor is a, a ragtag group of, of ten thousand fighting men and some very inexperienced fighting men who have rallied around Barak and Deborah now before likely before the army left the capital city to come down and to fight against Israel, likely they would have made, they would have done their ritual purifications and they would, they would have made their sacrifices to amongst all their polytheistic gods in Canaan at this time, the one god that they worshipped above all others was Baal. Again, polytheistic culture at that point, the, the Canaanites. They worshipped many different gods, but Baal was the king of all the gods. And so in a polytheistic religion like that, you have to appease the gods. The success that you have in victory or in battle is largely dependent on, have you appeased the gods? And what we know from archaeology is the, the, the images that we have of Baal are of a figure standing on the clouds with a thunderbolt in his hand because Baal was the storm god and as the Canaanite army is is dispersed in the valley with the the gently sloping Mount Tabor which rises about 1600 feet above you know on the distant uh, side of the valley storm clouds we know from Joshua chapter 5 storm clouds begin rumbling And you can almost picture the Canaanite army saying, yes, our God Baal is hearing us as the storm clouds begin rumbling, as the sky grows dark, and as the rain begins to fall. But perhaps with a smirk on her face high 1,600 feet up, Deborah just smiles because she knows exactly what's happening. She knows in her belief that there is only one true God and these rumblings are not of this Baal, but God has a different plan in mind. Because a flood comes, not uncommon for that region of the country, the Kishon River begins flooding and it, becomes, and it begins overflowing its banks such that the water spill out into the Jezreel Valley. And now what once was the confidence of the Canaanite army turns to panic as they look down from their chariots and they see their wheels covered with water and the hard ground of the plain turning to mud. And Deborah, from up on high in the mountain, looks down and sees a terrified army, a mobilized army, and she looks to Barak and says, this is your moment. Go. In the strength that God has given you, God has gone before you. He has immobilized the army. Now go. And now here's where it gets really cool. Barak's name means thunderbolt. And what God has in store in this moment is that the thunderbolt would overcome the storm god. And with 10,000 men on his heels, Barak descends like a thunderbolt from 1,600 feet, descends into the valley, and wipes out the Canaanite army. And only Sisera is left to flee on foot where he would meet his eventual demise just a short time later. The thunderbolt achieving victory over the storm god. And it all happens because this leader, this Deborah, saw something in Barak, called it out of him so that he could become the man that he was destined to be. Who knows what his parents thought when they named him Barak, but Deborah saw something in him. And it's interesting that Deborah's name means honeybee think about that for a second. Think about what a honeybee does. A honeybee going to the flower, extracting the pollen and the nectar, drawing it out, going back to the hive and, and producing these beautiful honeycombs that give sustenance and nourishment to us. For those of us who have seen Bee Movie, we know what happens when the bees don't work, right? You know, life comes to a standstill. And here's the, yeah, it's Ray Liotta's fault. Yes, uh, Ray Liotta Private Select Honey. Do not buy Ray Liotta Private Select Honey. Um, Deborah drawing out the strength of this man, Barack. And I think if you were to write a book about the life of Barack, I think it would be well be called. It could well be called, "Become Who You Are." Barak waiting in the shadows for years and years, being terrorized by this opponent. And it took this strong woman to call out the strength in him so that he could become who he was destined to be, someone who made an incredible difference. And and then in chapter 5, we hear the victory song. And later on, in the New Testament of the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 11, as the writer recounts the great heroes of ancient Israel, Barak is listed among the great heroes. And God's character, I believe, is uniquely distinguished or uniquely shows up in this text because of this dynamic interplay between this strong woman, Deborah, and this leader-in-waiting, Barak. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, it's very interesting how, how God describes the creation of man and woman. He said God creates the heavens and the earth, the universe fills it with plant life and animals, and God looks at all that he's created and he says it's good. But God comes to one point in time where he says, there's one thing that's not good, and that's for this man, Adam, created in my image, it's not good for him to be alone. So God says, I will make a helper or a companion suitable for him. And this is the creation of the first woman, Eve. Adam and Eve both created in God's image. Now, sometimes if you read in the Bible these early narratives of the creation story, sometimes the translators choose not to use the word helper to describe Eve. I will create a helper suitable for him. And we do. Th- and translators sometimes do that for 21st century North Americans because sometimes the word helper isn't exactly helpful. I mean, especially when you're talking about a woman, right? Well, a guy needs a helper. Well, that's a Stepford wife, right? You know, someone to give this guy whatever he needs, whenever he needs it. You know, honey, it's been a tough day, you know, working the garden, naming all the different animals. You know, if you could get me some coconut milk or some, you know, you know, some barriers or something, that'd be great. Just kind of like to kick up my heels. You know, most certainly, Adam, I'd be happy to help you with that. That's not at all the picture, though, that God is creating here. The woman helps, comes alongside, compliments the man out of her strength the woman is designed to do what the man cannot do alone. And we have that image of, of leading from a point of strength that makes itself very apparent in this narrative. You see, if Hollywood were to get a hold of this story, what they would do is, after the battle, after, you know, the enemy is destroyed, Barack would look lovingly at Deborah, their eyes would connect, and the romance would begin, right? Right? But that's not at all what happens here the bible goes to great pains to say that deborah was the leader she was the judge but she was married this isn't a love story this isn't a romance this is the story about how desperately we need each other and how we were designed to be in community with each other how men and women living in community with each other designed to be complementary with each other is so essential it's hardwired into our very fabric it's it's we we're created in god's image to be complementary to each other And so it takes this woman to draw out strength in this man so that he could become who he is. God, we believe, as a Christian church, God, we believe, is one God who exists eternally in this beautiful mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because God exists perfectly in community, God's desire for us is to live in community. We so desperately need each other. And this narrative, this story, is a powerful reminder of how we need each other. That life lived in isolation is, in fact, no life at all. And out of her strength, Barack calls Deborah to be the man he was created to be. Now, to bring that home to us, I believe Barack, Barack's story... Is a tremendous example of what can happen when we live our lives in aligned with community, with people who are willing to challenge us with something far greater than ourselves. It would have been easy for Barack to stay on the sidelines. Deborah called him out because Barack was born and destined for something far greater. And even though she was a woman in a patriarchal society, even though he was an under the radar leader, God continually works this way, choosing the most obscure and seemingly irrelevant people to accomplish his good purposes. As Christians, we believe that this is exactly the story of Jesus himself, that Jesus was raised in a town called Nazareth. I've been there. There's a beautiful church in Nazareth, but otherwise it's a pretty undescript town. It's not a cosmopolitan center, but yet that's where Jesus grew up. Jesus grew up not as a a lawyer, not as a doctor, but he grew up as as a carpenter, The Bible gives us hints that if you passed him on the street, you'd never know it was him. There was nothing that would draw us to him. He was a homeless man. And he was the single greatest figure in the history of civilization that's changed everything. God works this way all the time. I love the way Eugene Peterson phrases this in his translation, paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. In a letter written in the New Testament uh, after the time of Christ to a church in southern Europe... In Corinth, these are the words that the Apostle Paul writes, paraphrased by Eugene Peterson. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear that none of us can get by blowing our own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, comes from God by way of Christ Jesus. There are no little people in God's kingdom. God has always used unlikely heroes to accomplish his, his good purposes. And I believe that God is asking you too to take the dangerous step to trusting him with your life. Not simply to assent to Jesus as savior, but to follow him as lord because he does not desire to make you comfortable and convenient, but he desires to make you brave. Seth Godin, the prolific blogger, the prolific entrepreneur, author, said it this way, and I don't know where Seth Godin is on his spiritual journey, but he said it winsomely this way. We don't need people to memorize facts anymore. We have Wikipedia for that. You don't go to school to learn when the War of 1812 was anymore, because it's easy to find out. What we need you to do is solve interesting problems. In a world of seven billion people, that's what they're asking of us in this room. To solve the preeminent issues that plague our city and and that plague our world. We are among the privileged ones. We have been blessed in the language of the Bible so that we can be a blessing to others. And we need a community to call that out of us so that we can live out our our own calling to follow Jesus in the most wonderful adventures. That's what he calls us to. Gary Haugen could be making a lot of money working at a Washington law firm, but for decades now has spent his life advocating on behalf of those who have been exploited and oppressed. And he's the president and CEO of the International Justice Mission, an organization that works tirelessly on behalf of the, million, of the 27 million people in slavery and exploited around the world. And Gary Haugen, with a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face, said this, If my life of following Jesus does not feel dangerous, I might check to make sure that it's Jesus I'm following. God is calling us, each and every one of us, into a bigger narrative, far larger than any of us could ever imagine. Humphrey Bogart didn't ask to be swept up into the events of World War II, but that was his moment, what do I do? We were designed to live in community. We were designed to be the dead seas for each other, to buoy each other up and to strengthen each other. God gives us the power to accomplish these things because, in some beautiful way, again, going back to the very nature and the character of God, God never leaves us alone. If we choose to follow Him, Jesus said, that It's actually better for you that I go. After His life and death and resurrection, He says, It's better for you that I go because when I go, I will send the Holy Spirit. And for all of those who trust Jesus with their life and all of those who trust to follow Jesus, Jesus' own promise is. The Holy Spirit will go with you wherever you go. And even in the most frightening of experiences, even the most terrifying of moments, even when you just feel scared and lonely, you know that the Holy Spirit is always there, and that is the source of power that goes before you and that goes with you wherever you go. That's the promise of Scripture. That's the promise of the Christian message. Jesus has gone before us. He gives us His Spirit, and He invites us to follow Him. Wherever that may be. So, in all the towns, in all the countries, in all the world, in all the times of the history of civilization, God has you and me living and breathing in affluent Charlotte, North Carolina for this time and place. Is it simply because God wants to make our lives comfortable and convenient while a world of seven billion people suffers? Or is in fact God calling us to something far greater? That we don't have to do alone, but that we get to do with other people. And that by living in community, we can draw strength out of each other and call each other to a higher purpose. That's the calling, and that's the invitation. Now it's your move. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we don't like to be challenged when uh, you show us people in the Bible who do heroic deeds, who come from um, unsung backgrounds and from humble beginnings. Because most of us in this room, we do care deeply about poverty and suffering and uh, illiteracy and preventable diseases and exploitation. Uh, Those things do matter to us. But in our most honest moments, We want other people to do them for us. And we want the wealthy and we want the powerful to do it, and and we want to be off the hook because it's scary. And if we're honest, we look at ourselves and say, God, how could I make a difference in the world? But yet, God, you've named each and every one of us. You named Barack, and he became the Thunderbolt to accomplish an incredible victory on your behalf. You named Deborah the honeybee who rose up as a preeminent leader at a time and place in history to accomplish great and to draw out leadership and strengthen others. And you've given us a name and you've given us a destiny. Would we take that seriously? And would you keep us from a life of simple convenience? And would you show us how to enter into the preeminent issues of our days? Because there's a suffering world that so wants our engagement. They want to see your goodness demonstrated through people like us. Give us that courage. Make us brave. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. If we can get you any information at all before the offering baskets come around, feel free to indicate whatever you are interested in looking for on those cards that are on your seat. You can put those in the baskets. And as we collect the offering, for those of you who... uh, choose to give on Sunday, this is your opportunity to do this. Increasing numbers of us have chosen to contribute to the mission of Warehouse by by online giving because we believe in what this church is all about. We believe in what's ahead for our church. And we invite you to contribute to online giving as well. But for those of you who want to kind of give above and beyond or perhaps if you're visiting Warehouse and you'd like to help us in our mission, please feel no pressure to do so, but we're awfully grateful if you choose to contribute at that level. Because God has been so gracious and has blessed us so richly, this is an opportunity to give a small portion back to Him as a way of saying thank you. You know, going back to that quote by Gary Haugen about what it means to live a dangerous life if you choose to make that step to follow Jesus, that can seem like an awfully uh, daunting challenge, really. I mean, Gary Haugen and his team with International Justice Mission, I mean, there are people in that organization who literally go to work and they don't know if they're going to come back because they're fighting against such incredible evil in the world. And for some of us, we think about, man, what does a dangerous life look like for me? Gosh, I don't know if I'm called to do that, uh, to release people from bondage at a rice mill in India or release girls who've been trapped in prostitution in Calcutta. I mean, what am am, am I called to do? What does a dangerous life look like for me? Why don't I challenge each and every one of us? that perhaps the most practical next step for considering, God, what might you have me do at this time in history, is to come back to Warehouse on Friday for the iSpy event, where we're going to take an up-close and personal look at the reality of global slavery and sexual trafficking. The numbers are staggering, and the International Justice Mission and other relief organizations know these numbers all too well. 27 million people in the world currently enslaved. And a disproportionate amount of those, perhaps up to 80% of those, are sexually exploited. And far, again, far from it being just an issue over there, you know, somewhere kind of in the lower right of those screens, we know that whenever there is a global event like a World Cup, a Super Bowl, a Republican convention in Tampa, a Democratic National Convention in Charlotte, the sobering, dark reality is that illicit sexual behavior increases big time. And the demand for sexually exploited women will increase tremendously here in this city in the weeks ahead. And so how might we engage in these preeminent issues? Well, Tamara Park and Tyler Garnett and others have engage in these issues through their journalism profession and their desire is to at the very least educate us on the reality and so that we with open hands and open hearts can say what might you call us to do God how might we engage so this Friday 7 o'clock to uh, seven thirty, rather to 9 o'clock in the coffee room and then filtering into this room we'll have an opportunity to learn to be educated about the the reality of sexual exploitation in the world we'll be hearing from someone who's been actually rescued and delivered from that life here in Charlotte and we'll have an opportunity to consider, God, what might you have me do at this time and place in history? Again, uh, that's coming up this Friday. For more information and to let uh, her know that you're coming, email Tamara. You can just do that at info at warehouse242.org. Any questions that you have or just to let her know you're coming, just send her that email. That would be great. You know, another, uh, pouring your lives into people, being surrounded by people who come alongside and strengthen and buoy us up and, um, and lead in courageous ways. This is a real community. And so it's a great privilege to be in this journey with you all together. So let me send you out just this way. Lord, will you keep us from the simple path of comfort and convenience? We know you'll take care of us, but give us strength to be courageous and to follow your lead wherever it will take us. And may we follow you as our Lord. And may uh, this community be a community that uh, embraces you for who you are and loves our city, and loves our world. So now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you each this day, and may God make you brave for his glory. Go in peace.